I'm Scott. I'm Bill. And, and we're, we're the, the Trade, Trade Guys. Guys. You're listening to The Trade Guys, a podcast produced by CSIS where we talk about trade in terms that everyone can understand. I'm H. Andrew Schwartz, and I'm here with Scott Miller and Bill Reinch, the CSIS Trade Guys. On the next episode of The Trade Guys, we'll talk G7 trade ministers meeting and WTO reform. Then we'll talk about CPTPP and finally what's going on between the U.S. and China all on the next episode of The Trade Guys. This is Scott from The Trade Guys. Thanks for listening and wanted to let you know we're about six weeks away from the spring edition of a crash course in trade policy that Bill and I do in conjunction with CSIS Executive Education. We cover all the main topics, trade politics and policy, in a way that's uh, clear and understandable for professionals, whether they're U.S. government, foreign government, or private sector. We keep it a seminar format, keep the, the audience or class size small. We run it from online from 9 to about in the morning till about 2 in the afternoon. So our European listeners you don't have to stay up all night to participate in the course. But in any case, it's May 22nd and 23rd, basically two long half days. You can register now at CSIS.org. Click on Executive Education and you can navigate your way through to the Trade Guys Crash Course. We hope you see you there. And this is Trade Guy Bill with another plug, but this time for somebody else. Good friends of ours, Jennifer Hillman and Katrin Pullman at Georgetown University Law School have started the Center on Inclusive Trade and Development. And they're having a launch conference on April 13th, which I believe is a Thursday. And it's at Georgetown Law School, for those of you that are in town. And it's an all-day thing. It includes a number of significant speakers, in addition to Jennifer and Catherine, but WTO Deputy Director General Annabelle Gonzalez, another uh, trade guy friend, Ted Alden from the Council on Foreign Relations, Alan Wolf, another old friend of ours, is going to be speaking. Ed Gresser, whom we've had on this uh, on the Trade Guys before, is going to be talking, along with Florian Lazier from the Corporate Council on Africa. And Kathy Novelli, who has been running Listening for America, is also speaking. And by the way, a plug there. CSIS itself is doing a conference on commercial diplomacy on the 11th, which also is going to feature Kathy Novelli, as well as Undersecretary of State Jose Fernandez. So lots of other people's trade events. If you want to attend the CSIS commercial diplomacy event, go to the website and you'll see it there or ping Jaffet and he'll tell you about it. If you want to go to the Rethinking World Trade Conference, I think it's free, but you have to sign up. Go to the Georgetown Law website and you'll find everything you need to know. End of plug. Over to you, Andrew. Thank you. Guys, it's great to be with you through the plugs and through it all. Thank you. I'm glad to be back. As you all know, I had a life-changing journey to Iceland. Highly recommend it. It's an amazing place and those who have been there certainly know that. Um, but I'm happy to be back with you guys and talk and trade. Welcome back. We've got G7 trade ministers meeting and let's talk about that. You know, are the WTO members in agreement with that the appellate system actually needs to be reformed? I think they're in agreement that reform is needed. I don't think they're in agreement on what reforms to undertake. Uh, and that remains to be seen. There've been how, There's been a lot of conversation for years on this. Pace has picked up recently. 
the moderator, if that's the right term, who is the dep- Guatemala's uh, deputy representative, has launched an ambitious schedule of meetings that go right through the 1st of July. And I think his plan then is to then hopefully get a conceptual agreement on what to do and then spend the early fall actually drafting a text, which would then be negotiated. The parties at the last ministerial conference, which was June of last year, agreed that they would do something about this before the next one. And the next one is in February of 2024. So all this is designed to have something ready uh, for that. There's a few uh, grumpy parties who say it really isn't next February, by the end of 2024. But I think most people are aiming for the 2024 uh, ministerial as the time to confront this issue. There's been very little news about exactly what they're talking about. I can say, I think the issues that they'll address is, do they want to have an appellate body or not? It was the appellate body that caused all the trouble in the first place by deviating in, in the United States view from the constraints imposed on it by the Uruguay round to sort of stick to the script, stick to the agreement rather than make new law, and by ignoring some deadlines that the Uruguay round has set up. Ambassador Lighthizer's view, I don't want to put words in his mouth, but at the, I think his view at the time was, let's just have panels. Let's not have an appellate body at all. I don't think that that's where most of the members are of the WTO, but that will be an issue. And if we want to have an appellate body, how will it be different from the last one? Because, you know, the United States has taken the blame for the demise of the last one correctly. But the United States was not the only one that was unhappy. So there's a lot of other people that are unhappy. And there will be a discussion, I think, if there's going to be one over what it ought to look like. I think the other uh, one other big issue that was a U.S. issue is do panel decisions or appellate body decisions, if there's an appellate body, count as precedents? Or is every case one off? I mean, do you start over every time? I think the EU and some others have argued that this should be like a court and it should set precedent. And if it makes a decision, that should be taken into account the next time around when the facts are similar. I think the U.S. view has been contrary to that. So that'll be something that they'll have to deal with. I think the biggest issue for the U.S., and Ambassador Tai has alluded to this several times, is what the role of the whole thing has been. The complaint about the appellate body the last time was, as I said, they didn't stick to the script, that they made new law, and their view was they were filling in the cracks that the Uruguay round failed to address, which I think was okay with the EU. The U.S. view has been that the effect of that has been to allow countries to try to solve their problems by litigating and not by negotiating. And that this is one reason why we haven't had very many successful negotiations since the Uruguay round. And that it is better for the appellate body to stick to the script, stick to the Uruguay round specifically, and not take on to itself additional responsibilities or authorities that the WTO members didn't give it. Those are the main things that I think, I think they'll be discussing. No word on where any of that stands. Well, Scott, let me ask you this. Why is it so hard to reach a consensus on these reforms? Well, think of it, Andrew, as as our fights in the United States over judges, whether you want a strict constructionist or an originalist judge, or you want a judge that believes in a living constitution and operates in such a way that they modernize language and they take into account modern circumstances to when they view the facts with the law and the the Constitution. It's a similar kind of debate. It's not quite that based in in first principles. For me, the debate is, is this a trade negotiating body or is this a quasi-judicial rulemaking body? And I think that's really where the split comes. In the old days of the GATT, there was no appellate body. There were also each decision that was rendered by the panels was considered de novo. There were no precedents 
from prior cases that were acknowledged, although members often took them into account in their negotiating strategies. But the whole idea was, if you've got a problem, don't try to resolve it in a dispute panel, which is going to be likely unsatisfactory. Resolve it at the negotiating table. And we've given up on that at the WTO, which is unfortunate. We've done a little bit of negotiating, not much. And instead, we've gravitated toward the notion that the, the what, what is this quasi-judicial function, the dispute settlement understanding, would make binding decisions on members, which would have effect on future cases. So it's really, I think that's the core of the debate. And it's actually quite hard to resolve. It goes back to, what do you think this organization is there for? And in big members, we in Europe certainly have a very different view on it. Bill, how are our trade partners reacting to the USTR's strong rebuke of the WTO uh, rulings, USTR tie? Not well. I mean, publicly not well. They're unhappy. I think the rulings that have been most controversial, uh, not the rulings, but the, the U.S. response that has been most controversial has been on the, on the steel and aluminum tariffs, where we made the national security argument that this was a national security decision and, and the WTO has no right to second guess a country's national security decision. We lost that one. We should have seen that coming because the Russians made exactly the same argument in a case involved that Ukraine brought against them, I think pre-Crimea actually, or during the, their annexation of Crimea. And that was a little different in the end because the Russians lost the argument about whether the WTO could review national security decisions. But then it went, they went on to prevail in the actual case because the WTO panel concluded that, that even though the Russian argument didn't hold water, Russia's actions were a legitimate exercise of national security protection that met the standard in Article 21 of, of the WTO. The United States lost on both grounds. They, they lost the argument and then they lost the case as well. And the U.S. response was basically they thumbed their nose at the WTO and said, we're not going to comply and you have no right to second guess our national security decisions. I've ranted about this in my column more than once, and I'm about to do it again, either this week or next. It, it really undercuts the institution. And I think that's why the other countries are upset. You know, there's a set of rules, and it was a panel we lost, fair and square. And if you don't like the rules, then we ought to be negotiating changing the rules, which we are. But in the meantime, you comply with the rules. Otherwise, you undercut the institution. This is the Biden administration that came into office saying it was it was there to sort of defend and advance the multilateral system and the rules-based system. And in fact, we've made the worst of a bad situation. We lost a case we didn't like, and so we're not complying. I mean, that's that's not what leaders do. And so I mean, for me, it's, it's like, well, what are we in this organization? Are we just going to kick it around like everybody else? Or do we want to actually see it function as, as was designed? Because I think if you go back to the way the, the organization was designed, it's very much in the American interest to function according to a set of mutually agreed rules. So we'll see what happens. There's also a practical effect, which is it basically it gives everybody else permission to do the same thing. Right. You know, our, our argument was you can't second guess a country's unilateral decision about what's in its national security interest. That means that you know, every other country can use the same argument that we used on their cases and get away with it. And if you think, well, that's not likely to happen, I'll just remind everybody that the case that created a lot of this controversy in the, in the first place was in the 1950s when Sweden uh, posed tariffs on shoes. 
and claim national security. And when pressed on the point, they said, well, the army wears shoes, so it's a national security issue. I mean, they kind of got laughed out of court on that one, but we've opened the door to that coming back. And uh, that can't be good for the institution or the trading system. All right, guys, another story that we're following, of course, is the UK joining CPTPP. What about it? That's a big story this week. First of all, I think the UK has managed to reaffirm its credentials as a free trade nation, uh, which are longstanding, because not only did they join the what we called the TPP, and it got a longer acronym as it as it as it got fewer members, but it's growing again now. And they also uh, ratified free trade agreements with Australia and New Zealand, which had uh, had they stepped away from their imperial preferences when they joined the European communities long ago. But so this is all part of Brexit. But the UK is a free trade nation. They've shown their credentials again. I think it's good for CPTPP, which, by the way, I, I still I think Bill and I agree on this. This is the most consequential unforced error in American trade policy since Smoot-Hawley. The idea that we did not join after we shaped it and negotiated it and were ready to set the rules in this part of the world that is the home of the global middle class. It was just such a whiff. So it's a bipartisan whiff. We won't, I'll, I'll get over it now. But the UK basically entered where the United States couldn't or wouldn't. And uh, so what you have for the Brits is you have a place that operates pretty much on British rules. If you think the UK, Australia, New Zealand, Singapore, and Canada are all common law economies. They all have relatively honest and transparent civil service. They operate well in the world economy because of those facts. And the UK will, I think, readily find a home. It's also most of the countries in the Asia-Pacific region who are members of CBTPP look at the UK membership as a nice hedge against kind of trade declines for whatever reason by other members. Keep in mind that three of the big Asian members, Japan, Korea, and China, all have real demographic problems. They're all getting old really fast. And that's going to affect the trade flows. It's going to affect their economies quite substantially over the future. And so if you're a country, an open, open sort of growing economy like Malaysia, or if you're just somebody who's a real trader like New Zealand, you're looking at bringing Britain into this agreement as a way to hedge your, your export mix uh, that will pay off if catastrophe happens. So there's enough whiffing to go around on this one, I take it. <laughs> yes. Well, the thing, that, the thing that intrigued me about it is this the analysis that was done in the UK that projected that entering the agreement would add 0.08% to the UK's economy over 15 years. Right. That's about as small as you can get. Which suggest you know, and the UK response is well. If other countries join, it'll be bigger, and that's sort of true. But even if you multiply that by ten, uh, you know, you're still less than one percent. This is not going to have, uh, by all projections so far, a significant impact on the UK economy. I think it's probably for them more an, an instrument of soft power. Uh, it's a way to remind everybody that they used to be in the Pacific. I mean, one of the the ironies of this whole thing is it this is the this is the Trans-Pacific Partnership writ large. The UK entering gives new meaning to the term Pacific. They haven't been in the Pacific for a while. I mean, 1998 was when Hong Kong reverted to China, and I think that was the last British outpost there. I mean, there used to be a lot of them, but that's why we called it the Far East. By the way, it's a it's far east of London. <laughs> 
No, I mean, seriously, uh, that, that is where the term the Far East comes from. Because the Near East was Russia. Yeah. Was my, you know, St. Petersburg was Near East. Far East was Hong Kong. I think it's, uh, I think they're doing it. It's a soft power extension. I mean, I'm for it. It's a smart move. And it makes CPTPP a bigger and better and more important thing, which will be good if, if and when we get back into it, which I hope will happen. I agree with Scott on that. Well, well, speaking of whiffs, though, like what are the consequences of us not being involved with this? Well, there's no market access, but more importantly, there's no good structure for shaping the rules in this fast growing part of the world. I mean, yeah, I understand the economic econometric studies that show a very small gain. And my point would be, yeah, maybe the gain is small, but that means the loss is probably small too. And so anybody who's whining about this is probably exaggerating. But the more important part is th this is the, the home of the global middle class uh, from for the future. And this is an area where there's going to be massive economic growth and commercial opportunity. And rules matter, okay? American companies function better in a, in a, a system that they understand, in many ways, in a system that they help shape. And that's why, why we, we come back to these, in some ways, the same argument as staying in the WTO and trying to help it overcome its obstacles is because the rules actually work for us. They're, they're things that make our, our economy stronger. And being absent from it means we're not part of the rulemaking process, which is a setback. And all we're doing is setting up these uh, talk shops like the unpronounceable IPEF. Yeah, IPEF is impossible. Bill, what, what are your, some of your views on the consequences of us not joining the gang? I think it's what, it's what Scott said. And in a way, the economics for the United States, I think, are not hugely different from the UK. I think the studies suggested more of a gain for us than 0.8%. But, you know, if you listen to Obama talk about TPP when it was being negotiated, it was never about how much rice we were going to sell the Japanese. I mean, it wasn't really about market access. It was about countering China. Yes, it was about countering China. And it was about essentially maintaining what has been U.S. policy in the region since 1945, which is guaranteeing that there's not a single dominant Asian power in Asia, that there's a balance. And we, were, we fought World War II over Japan. Now it's China, but it's the same principle. So this is the thing that I can't understand. And you can recall back to when TPP was really gaining momentum, there was something like six or seven former secretaries of defense, bipartisan, all saying that for national security reasons, the United States needed to join TPP. And it was spearheaded, I think, by Leanne Panetta and Bill Cohen and Rumsfeld signed it, all of them signed it. If this is something that could counter China isn't countering China a bipartisan value currently? So what am I missing here? Well, keep in mind, this, these arguments were made, unfortunately, in 2016, which was an election year. There were three important candidates for the presidency, all three of which articulated opposition to TPP. That would be Bernie Sanders, Hillary Clinton, and Donald Trump. Uh, there was bipartisan opposition during that year among presidential candidates and no support. So that's why you, we got the result we got. Uh, there are people in the Biden administration who have said, I think Catherine actually has said, that she thinks that Hillary lost the election over this issue, which I think is simply wrong. Yeah, I think that's wrong too. The problem, I think the problem that she had on the issue was that nobody believed her when she said she was against it. 
because she she'd been an instrumental part of negotiating. I mean, it was, it was easy to believe Donald Trump when he said it was a bad idea because he'd been saying that those things were bad ideas for 30 years. Same with Bernie, but it probably would have been politically better for her just to stick to her position and, and, and go forward. But I, I don't think it was dispositive. But the politics of this, I mean, Andrew, you make a very good point. And I have a feeling that if you talk to members of Congress right now of either party, there would be probably more support for going back to TPP than the administration thinks for exactly the reason that you said, uh, because it is about China and it always has been. Uh, the problem is that, and, and we, you know, the politics of this are that the Biden folks have made a decision. They don't want to do anything that irritates their left wing. And because the TPP includes market access, the left wing has deemed it to be uh, costing jobs and hurting American workers. That's why they opposed it in 2016. They still oppose it. Go talk to them. They, I guarantee you they still oppose it. We've talked to them. And the administration just does not want to have that intra-party debate again. It was bitter the last time. And all the signs are, frankly, it'll be bitter again this time. I think the, the numbers have changed. And I think the people against it are a minority. I think they always were a minority. I think they're more a minority now than they were then. But, you know, the administration doesn't want to have the fight. Very difficult time, of course, to be a centrist and very frustrating time to be a centrist when you have the left wing of the Democratic Party being placated to by the center, center of the Democratic Party. And on the other side, you have centrist Republicans catering to the far right of their party. When I was on the Hill, I always used to say, you know, it was a lot, it was really easy to be Jesse Helms or Howard Metzenbaum, for that matter, because you knew what you were going to do. Your positions were predictable all the time. If you were in the center, you actually had to think about every issue mm. and, and do some analysis and figure out where you came down. So you're right. The center is complicated. Well, look, TPP may be a missed opportunity, but we have a couple of senators who are teeing up an issue which would really harm the American economy which is withdrawing normal trade uh, relations with China. Right. Which is something we got to talk about next. This is, Scott, you're talking about Senator Rick Scott, Tom Cotton, and others introducing a bill to end China's permanent normal trade status, PNTR, as we call it. Yes. Okay. Let's talk about that, guys. What is that all about? Well, let, let me just summarize it by saying this is a great bumper sticker. This is the bumper sticker every anti-China politician wants. But it is so unequivocally harmful to U.S. commercial interests and probably U.S. strategic interests. I was going to say our business people can't like this at all. Oh, it's a, it, you shudder at the thought. Well, let me describe it. First of all, this all comes from basically uh, Scoop Jackson and Congressman Charlie Vanek of, of Ohio and the Jackson-Vanek Amendment uh, to the Trade Act of 1974. And it was about anti-communism, particularly anti-Vietnam anti-communism. So uh, there was a list of countries who required a, a resolution of disapproval to the Congress had to vote every year on whether to extend normal trade relations. It was about the emigration of Soviet Jews. That was the genesis of yeah. the whole thing. That was what, what galvanized the Congress. To add it. That's, that's right. right. It, was, it was about. And that's where Scoop Jackson was coming from, certainly. Yes. And the Russians wouldn't let them out. And this yes. was designed right. to pressure the Russians to do what they eventually did. Right. But it led to this uh, this vote on countries who were then de determined to be communist. There was a list created. And every year, if you wanted to extend normal trade relations, uh, it was subject to a resolution of disapproval in the Congress, which never really went very far. 
But when those members or those those nations on the list wanted to join an organization like the GATT or the WTO, the United States would have to reciprocally extend them normal trade terms, not subject to an annual vote of Congress, therefore permanent normal trade relations or permanent MFN as it was originally called. So the idea of this is almost, it's, it's, you have to go back to Lewis Carroll and through the looking glass because yes is no and no is yes on a lot of these things <laughs> because the congressional yeah. vote was always a resolution of disapproval. So the supporters of trade voted no. The opponents of trade voted yes because it was a resolution of disapproval. Second, when it came to come to extending it, what we always had to explain to members of Congress who were voting on permanent status, particularly for China, is we've just negotiated for a dozen years to get a really good accession agreement. But if we don't extend normal trade to China, we can't take advantage of anything we just negotiated. In fact, the truth of the matter is, were we to withdraw normal trade relations from China, they could treat us any way they want to. They don't have to offer us a thing that they agreed to under the rules and the market access provisions of their WTO accession. And that's why it's harmful to everybody. It's one thing to take it away from Russia, which is not a particularly big trading partner. In fact, it's a small trading partner of the United States. China is our number three trading partner. And up, back up above total trade with U.S. and China is back up where it was pre-COVID. Well, and by the way, if we freeze out China, who does China then become closer to? Russia. And that's another, that's a national security problem for us. Well, sure. And, you know, we all, all, all the talk about moving uh, things out of China and reducing our reliance on China, trade's growing between our two countries. And you'd cut it all off. Guys, this has been so. a good episode. We got to talk about Scoop Jackson, CPTPP. Yes. This has been a good episode. Bill, any last words? I would just comment. I was struck in the rhetoric about the bill that we were just talking about, the China bill, as Senator Scott said, the CCP, meaning the Chinese Communist Party, cares about one thing, undermining America. Uh, and I just say that is about as wrong as you could possibly be. I can tell you, job one for the Chinese Communist Party is maintaining itself in power. And that has a lot more to do with what there is going on inside China than anything else. Just ask our colleagues, Jude Blanchett and Scott Kennedy and Bonnie Lynn about that. They'll tell you. Yes. I mean, that's not to say that the Chinese are not interested in undermining America, but to say it's a single, their single most important thing is really off the mark. The economic consequences would be cataclysmic, as, as Scott des described, as would the institutional consequences, because basically, once again, we would be breaking the rules and breaking the WTO rules. And I mean, I confess I'm an institutionalist. We spent 70 years building these things up and trying to create some discipline in the system. And now we're busy unraveling it. That can't possibly be good for us in the long run. All right, guys. This has been a, a fiery episode, to be sure. So glad to be back with you from the land of fire and ice. We'll see you next week. Welcome back. Glad to have you. Take care, Andrew. See you. To our listeners, if you have a question for the Trade Guys, write us at tradeguys at csis.org. That's tradeguys at csis.org. We'll read some of your emails and have the trade guys react to it. You've been listening to The Trade Guys, a CSIS podcast.